Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. If we weren't recording this morning, you are going to see an email from me today or this week as a result of Renee and I having conversations about the 2024 spring growing season. Uh, And I was going to ask you, hey, if there's anything that I'm going to be growing for myself or Renee that you have interest in, now's the time to send me numbers. And without going into our whole past episodes about scheduling and whatnot, you know, this, this, this is the time to be thinking about it. I think our seed catalogs like Johnny's and Harris and whomever, um, isn't this one of their most exciting times of year because we're all cooped in with snow outside and we're looking through nice, pretty pictures and catalogs, picking out what we want to grow. My family has definitely spent some time looking at the catalogs in the last two weeks. So (laughs) we fit that demographic too. I think you said it well in past episodes that, I mean, if you think about it on the, you know, you want crops in the ground before the last frost, like starting at when your last frost is like, it really is a January, February conversation. And, and that planning is helpful. I mean, I can tell you that through our conversations in the last couple of years, I mean, we in our house bought some plants and then now we've started to think about what can we do that, you know, grows early and then how do we have the next thing ready? And you don't, you don't have to schedule. You don't have to, you you know, you can, you can be very ad hoc in what you do, but it's one of those places where a little planning can have a major impact on what you end up with. And for harm gardeners, or hobbyists that don't need this to make a living, like that's fun and it's great to have extra, but as a, this is your business and you're trying to maximize the value and volume that you're producing, it's absolutely critical. And whether that's getting multiple successions in so that you have more produce at the end or more plants at the end, or if it's trying to be the first one out and getting that shoulder season, that higher value for those first whatever items they are. I mean, the first sweet peas or the first corn, all of that. This is the time to think about it. And to, you know, if I was in your office, I would be thinking about what they sell for and how they schedule and what labor is. And it's not just the seeds, but it kind of is the first place that we run into that conversation each year. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me kind of uh, cap cap off any scheduling comments by saying as, as um, rigid and disciplined as I've taught myself to be on this topic, Michelle, to have the structure and the schedules, there's also that part of me, again, going back 10 minutes, that what if part, that creative imaginative part, there's always room to bring something in at the last minute as long as you have enough room in the greenhouse. So if you bring something in that's not scheduled, something else needs to be cut a little bit so we don't jeopardize quality by trying to jam too much into a fixed or finite production area. So yes, um, always being able to bring something in at the last minute, because again, one out of five 
you know, new ideas if, if one succeeds. So if you, you see a new cultivar or a new species, a new crop at the last minute, I'd rather not um, say to myself, oh, it's too late. I'll wait till next year because a whole year. Now, when we have Renee on in the upcoming weeks, in our exchange over this past week, Michelle, there was one cultivar of a snack pepper that, and again, he and I share grandchildren uh, where his daughter married my son. So he has uh, one, one cultivar that, and I keep all the seeds up here in my refrigerator, Michelle, because I'm sowing and starting the young plants here in Andover for him to take down to Allentown, Pennsylvania. So I said, Renee, I've got everything on your list except for this one cultivar. And uh, so I said, go ahead and order it. I think it was from Johnny's. And his email back to me was, I just, I put my order in in Johnny's and I'm not interested in paying, you know, $5 shipping just for the one item. So my email back to him was, look, I've got your list of what you want. I want to grow exactly what, what you want. So I went ahead and ordered it <laughs> so I, and I made an excuse and, and said, you know, there are a few cultivars of novelty cucumbers that I've had in mind. So I just added it onto that. And uh, because I said to him, I won't sleep at night if I know that we could have gotten seeds for this because his response was, well, I'll wait till next year and we'll add it back in. I said, no, we're, we're we're both in our 70s. You know, I, there's not enough time to just keep waiting a year. Let, let's go ahead and do it. So we went through all that. And he said, well, I didn't realize you it was going to keep you up at night. And I said, well, you and Michelle, when we are all together on an episode, you, you can take jabs at me for being a little too rigid in some of this. But you're going to thank me this summer because you're going to have that cultivar pepper. It's all amazing. I mean, one, uh, the joke I would make is that, you know, those peppers were completely inelastic to you. Your grandchildren being happy was worth a lot. So <laughs> there's definitely that, but just that we fall in love with the cultivars that you use and the adoption rates. And I mean, there's so much in what you said that I talk about so often I mean, with people that aren't used to being in agriculture you only get so many seasons. And so it's hard for farmers and growers to adopt new things, new practices, because you only get a couple tries. And if it messes up one whole season, like when you only get 30 or 40, that's a lot. And two, when your livelihood depends on it, it's a huge risk to take. And so you know, it's, it's funny to see it how it plays out at both the small level where it's the happiness of your grandchildren versus the large level where it's how well that snacking pepper sells versus the other one. May I uh, lay a couple of ground rules for the discussion, Michelle? That'd be great. Okay. So first one, and, uh, and, and this is a ground rule. This isn't one of the three rules that, that we're going to define as, as crop scheduling. Uh, and, and what I'm about to say isn't going to go over well with all of our listeners. And it's this, just because it's sown doesn't mean it has to be planted. In other words, just because you made decisions and you might have started plugs to be transplanted, maybe it's lettuce, maybe it's petunias, just because you have these young plants in the greenhouse 
ready to be planted in the field or on benches doesn't mean they have to be planted. In other words, if you go ahead with original plans for a season and then a crisis like this unfolds and you blindly just say, okay, it's, it's in the cards. I have these plants. I'm going to plant them and grow them to maturity. I think that could be a mistake. It might be that you and I decide or, or recommend that, that a grower adjust his or her product mix, product mix to, to better serve the market during the crisis. Um, if production adjustments are needed, it is much cheaper to dump seedlings than mature crops. And you've reported on some stories in the news on just that, mature, mature crops being plowed under, correct? Yes, there are lots of stories from potatoes to cabbage to tomatoes. So in, in my mind, I want growers to think twice about the following gut feeling. Oh, just plant it and we'll figure out how to deal with it later. We're not in a, an economic climate where that's going to work. Oh, just plant it. And I've got uh, two brothers. The three of us ran the family garden center and greenhouse operation. My younger brother was the speculator. And he would always say, oh, just plant it. Just plant it, right? He, he couldn't bring himself to throw it away. I was the scheduler of the operation. So in my head, it was all numbers. And here's where um, I don't have an accounting degree, but I felt like an accountant uh, over the years where I was planning on what to order, uh, what to sow uh, for ornamental crops. Many, many are propagated asexually by cuttings. So how many stock plants we needed to grow to generate the cuttings that we needed. And, and, and for me, my experience time and time again was throw it out early. It's cheaper than dumping it in the end. So, so with that said, if you um, let, let's shift into the first scheduling rule of my three and that one I call seamless transitions. So let's take quick crop like lettuce or um, maybe radish might be even a little easier to, to use as, as an example. Radishes, on the most part, 28 days from sow to harvest. So figure, you know, a month from putting the seed in the soil to pulling that radish and, and uh, packing it off for delivery. That's pretty easy to schedule successive plantings. And the goal is once we start harvesting and selling to restaurants or farmers markets, whatever the outlet is, we want an uninterrupted supply of radishes throughout whatever the selling season is defined as. So if it's an outdoor field, we have the season defined by nature. If it's in the greenhouse, we're pretty much free to go 365 days every day of the year. So um, we want one crop to be uh, pulled and harvested, and then we don't want a gap. We'd like the next or successive planting of radish to be ready the day after. Now, what goes into some of the scheduling um, uh, challenges is one concern is, well, how long does that radish crop last uh, or how long is the harvest period? So let's say that a radish, uh, we can harvest it over the period of one week. 
and, and I'm using very round numbers just to illustrate the concepts, Michelle. Let's say that that radish um, we can harvest for a week. That means we can grow enough of that particular sowing to get us through a week's worth of harvest. And as that harvest week comes to an end, the next crop of radish needs to be approaching the early side of its one week of harvest. And the seamless transition rule is make the effort to schedule these successive plantings so that we have that uninterruption. And also we don't want to have so much that we're going to be dumping some of planting or sowing one because planting two is ready and, and it's um, uh, on the heels of, of sowing one. Does that make sense? It does. It seems like a difficult schedule to keep track of and why it probably requires a lot of planning, but the steps of having a well-rounded season and maximizing your days makes sense. So, so you can help us understand as an, as an economist, what in, in um, um, I, I know I'm bouncing around, but in, in research, we know that there are two types of errors we can make in interpreting data. And, and one error is, is saying something is real or true when it's actually false. And the other error is the opposite, saying something is false when it's actually true. So let me blend that into this conversation. For seamless transitions, there are two errors that can be made. One of them I, I mentioned, that would be a, an error that uh, results in a gap in harvest so that we have a number of days where there are no radishes available. So that says to me, either one of two things need to be adjusted in the, in the grower's scheduling. Either the first sowing of radish didn't have enough radishes in it, or the second sowing of radish was too late. So you see where we can use the, these rules and, and the grower has a couple of decisions to make. If it is a gap, it might be easier next year or next cycle to just increase the number, the quantity of the crop that's being grown. Now the other side, the other error is there are too many we don't have a seam, we do have a seamless transition, but in order to go from crop one to crop two, we're going to dump the extras in crop one. See, a lot of growers make the mistake, Michelle, of, of being so um, committed to selling every radish that they're going to delay harvesting the next crop. And in a result, because they're so stubborn and won't dump crop number one, the extra, they're actually decreasing the quality or the, uh, the window of opportunity for crop two. Is that making sense? It does. And I think that maybe you inadvertently argued against yourself. Uh, generally, you argue for sell out, but it sounds like that is sell out uh, for the season when you are planning and not sell out with each harvest, right? Here, you would suggest uh, selling what is necessary and to keep moving on your harvest cycle. Yes, excellent point. And, and, and the principles that you and I are digging into in, in, in the gate, Michelle, they're, 
there are layers and, and levels of each principle that a grower needs to harness, learn, learn how to work uh, so that the profit margin is maximized. So yes, you're absolutely correct. What, what is the decision on, on the radish? Do, do we, if we have a, sh a small gap, it's either we're balancing either a customer being disappointed that he or she doesn't get radishes for two days, or um, we, we end up dumping if there's too many. So, so we've established, or we, are, we continue to establish that shrinkage is a silent assassin. And, and anytime we dump things, we're cutting into the bottom line. And that might be an episode all to itself, Michelle, because you've got plenty of numbers from the economic side that will help illustrate um, the, the gravity of growing too much. So for the seamless transition, it's now understand that we're working with living organisms. These are plants. They're not nails or nuts and bolts, widgets and gadgets, all right? So, so these are living things. We're dealing with mother nature. So when I define what, what my uh, uh, vision of seamless transition is, understand that that's the carrot that's out in front of us that we, we just keep out there in front of us. That's the goal, uh, that's perfection. And in reality, uh, we're, we're, it's, it's, it's not achievable. Right. Once we talk about indoor vertical farming and harnessing the environment that much to a, a much greater degree, we're going to be able to get a little closer to grabbing that radish. Every, I mean, that carrot that's hanging out in front of us. But I would say that still um, we're, we're dealing with living organisms and and that that's perfection. That's our goal. But understand it's not necessarily getting there, but it's how close we get to it. I think it's perfectly okay to aim from the radish that we are growing in our 28-day cycle. And I also understand why it makes why there's some appeal to the vertical growing or why there's so much appeal to the vertical growing because if you could take out some of those variations, then the goal really is to make mother nature and our cropping cycle much more perfect like a widget in a factory. So understanding these principles is important for all three types of growers because you do need it in the field where you have no control over or limited control over the environment, but you also need it as you get more and more control because there's more and more investment and therefore you need to be operating as uh, succinctly as possible to maximize your profit at each step. So you just eloquently shifted or segued from scheduling rule number one to number two. So I thank you for that. Scheduling rule number two is crop my crop timing rule. And it it now it, this part of the conversation we're going to uh, separate out the three different farming environments, the field, the greenhouse, the indoor um, vertical, uh, vertical farm. So crop timing number two is, again, designed around most of my career that's been spent in the greenhouse. And most of that time in the greenhouse has been spent on spring crops. So understanding mother nature and growing conditions, crop timing rule is as follows. To change 
the crop timing by one week in either direction for a spring crop, the planting date needs to be adjusted by two weeks in the same direction. In other words, if I have a crop of geraniums that are being, that's being sold in um, the second half of May, and I decide that, gee, those geraniums aren't in bloom in time for Memorial Day, and next year I need to plant them sooner. I need that, I need that crop to flower one week sooner in May. Well, it's not going to work if next year I simply plant that crop in February one week sooner. That's not going to make it because the growing conditions in February and March are not equal to the growing conditions in May. So I've learned that in order to advance crop flowering by a week in May, I need to sow or plant the cuttings two weeks earlier in um, February or early March. Likewise, if I want to delay the flowering by a week, I'm able to delay the start of that plant during the winter heating season by two weeks. Does that make sense? It does. And it just shows how much institutional knowledge and experiential knowledge you gain from each growing season to have deduced that because that is not something they put on the back of those packets of seeds. So understanding these and sharing this experience is invaluable. Yes, most of us thumbing through a seed catalog take that uh, days to maturity. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that plant breeders and uh, uh, seed distributors um, roll their eyes and, and wish sometimes that that days to maturity wasn't part of the, um, you know, on, on the description of the seed because it's uh, a big grain of salt. So there's so much that, that goes into it. Um, now, so, so to just finish this thread a, a bit, Michelle, you could see where as we go from the field and graduate to the greenhouse and now take that next step to the indoor fully controlled um, environment uh, that, you, that you cited a, a moment ago, you could see where someday as we perfect uh, the vertical farm, the indoor growing, uh, we might come back and say, okay, Peter, we don't need your rule number two anymore because we've got consistent growing conditions every day of the year. And if I want to delay the crop of radish by one day, I'm simply um, going to delay the sowing of the seed by one day. That is the hope. Although I have a funny feeling that we are not going to be able to get that much control over Mother Nature, but we'll see. <laughs> that... Uh, Yes, and, and uh, I've been involved in a, a couple of uh, research projects, Michelle, over the, the last decade at uh, various uh, high-profile universities where um, engineers have um, just brazenly come into the room and said, we've got plant growth figured out. We've got the algorithm all defined. We're going to grow this. Uh, we're going to produce or engineer this growing container and uh, solve the world's uh, food hunger problems. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm a laid back kind of guy and, and I, I don't you know, challenge them immediately, but just under my breath say, okay, you got a lot to learn. Uh, we're not quite there yet. That, that again, um, uh, that's the carrot again, that analogy that, that we're using, that's hanging out in front of us. 
how close can we get to it and how quickly can we get there? But now, before I get to, to the third rule, Michelle, I think this conversation is appropriate for us to bring in an aspect of, of the uh, farming that you have really good experience with, and that is cultivar selection, um, how plant breeders are helping um, address some of our needs as growers. Do, do you want to share a few thoughts on cultivars? Because, uh, you know, we might have a radish that is 28 days and we might have a radish that's 25 days and another one that's 30 days. So, so that makes my job as a scheduler a little more complicated. But you might say, um, well, grow this cultivar for that market and this one for that market. What do you say? Yeah, when I work with growers on cultivar selection, I try to have them rank what they're looking for. So what is the most important thing to you? Uh, and in your situation, you know, the way that you described it with the scheduling, it might really be that the crop sticks to that schedule. And whether it's, you know, you can have a 28 day, very clean every fourth Monday I plant uh, and so for you, it might be the trueness to those days or the quickness to maturity so that you can turn your crop over. Uh, for your brother that is the speculator, it might be, um, you know, that it grows bigger or it grows prettier or that it is something that a chef might want so you can really maximize your profit. So I like to think about cultivar selection first and foremost in what is your biggest priority? Is it having a specialty product? Is it days to maturity? Is it germination rate? Um, and then as you rank those, you can start to work with your seed dealer or representative on which of the cultivars meet what you're looking for. And so like everything, it is, you know, a, it is a trade-off of resources uh, and figuring out what needs to work. But I completely understand that for where we're talking about right now and for a, you know, a grower that this is a business, that the cycle time and the days and that consistency is really important because if you're having one, if you can't follow the rules like you've laid out, then you are going to have those gaps in efficiency. Well said. There, there's, um, I think most growers, regardless of crop category and, and the environment that they're growing in, Michelle, most growers have come to understand that plant breeding is their lifeblood and its advances in plant breeding that have allowed us to either cut costs, streamline crop cycles, um, satisfy consumer demand. And I use the phrase that the only limiting factor I see in the challenge ahead for feeding the world, the only limiting factor is our imagination. And I credit our plant breeders around the globe, and you work with some of these groups, I credit them with sustaining us and providing new cultivars. Now that said, Michelle, there are many cultivars that are in production that are tried and true, and we've been growing them for decades. 
So, so there are two sides to the coin. Once we breed something that performs well, well, if there's nothing better that comes along, keep growing the old cultivar. So it's not a simple matter of anything that comes out that's new is going to replace the old. Uh, there are some good old standbys. Uh, there's a cultivar of uh, butternut squash that was bred right near you and me at the uh, Waltham Experiment Station for the University of Massachusetts, and it's called Waltham Butternut. I grew it in the 1970s. It is still a leading cultivar of butternut squash. So, so it, new doesn't always mean um, that it's always better. Uh, there are some old things that are worth hanging on to. For sure. And I think that, you know, we talked about it a little bit last week is considering what are you good at growing and what are you interested or what is that challenge you're looking for? And there is risk with growing a new variety. Uh, so there are definitely places where maintaining the, the variety that you're used to growing and seeing success in is worth it. And we've talked about it on in other mediums, and I've talked about it with clients, is as you are bringing new varieties into your rotation, I wouldn't recommend ripping up your entire crop or not growing any Waltham butternut this year, but growing a little bit to get used to it and to see that you can develop the system that has the seamless transition and that you can avoid some of these errors or make them on a small scale. I think that there's a lot of, and I'm going to get the quote wrong from the Cornell professor, that is basically saying you want to fail small, not fail big. So, you know, testing that new variety, figuring out how it fits in your seamless transition, understanding the crop timing rule, and then expanding it next year once you've figured out a lot of these things that we're talking about. Perfect recap up to this point, Michelle. That, and, and you know, some, at some point in the future, I think a, a, an episode on its own can be um, talking about cultivars. And what you described is, is so important. I have a, a whole standalone presentation on how growers should conduct on-site trials. And you just described it. If, if Waltham Butternut is the anchor cultivar, try something new. Set aside a section of the field to try a new cultivar so you can compare them. And the on-site trial, the, the key to succeeding and making informed decisions is understanding what a control is and how you use control. So in your scenario, the butternut squash is the control. That's what the new cultivar is going to be measured against. If it does as well or better, then you have a decision to make. Are you going to grow more of the new cultivar? If it doesn't perform as well, then you stick with the, the tried and true. Quick story before we go on to uh, rule number three, Michelle, and, and you touched on this in cultivar selection. In our garden center, my mother was the one that um, she and I learned to work hand in hand. We, we could finish each other's sentences as, as we worked together. She was the one that would decide uh, in the seed catalog or when the seed salesman came along through the latter part of the summer, 
so that we could order for the following year. She was the one that had the final say in any of the cultivars. And I'll use impatience as a, a bedding plant as, as, as the example here. She would have me grow a pink impatience from one line. It might have been called super elf in pink. And then she might have picked a, um, a lavender from another line. It could have been dazzler lavender. And I would come to her as the crop scheduler and say, hey, mom, could you just simplify it? Could we do all super elfin and all dazzler? And, and she would get kind of huffy and say, you just be quiet and grow what I tell you to grow. And in her mind, the shades of pink and lavender and whatever color in her mind, when she was taking retail customers around the garden center, choosing the colors that were going to be planted in the yard because my daughter or son is getting married and we're having a party. The shades of pink that my mother saw in her eyes, she could see one eighth color differences or shades, and I could only see half color shades. So it was a really good learning experience for me to trust her. And then once she decided what she wanted to grow, then it was my job to deliver that to her. So at that point, it was my job to give her seamless transitions, to give her the color palette that she needed, and to do that profitably without a lot of dumping. And if, if we were able to click on all those cylinders, then that year would be a profitable year. So now let me finish off and head into scheduling rule number three, and that's called the dumping rule. So this silent assassin that I describe shrinkage as is so very important. And the quality adjustment, the dumping rule, starts with keeping track of every single unit that's dumped. And I'm going to stop there and let you comment because that, that we can't even talk about a rule until somebody has control over what he or she is experiencing as shrinkage. Would you like to comment before I proceed? Yeah. Uh, last week, I was finishing out my semester of microeconomics, and one of the last topics covered is sort of this behavioral economics and some of the applications. And I think that this is probably an extremely hard step for most growers. One, because we are overconfident. So I am guessing that if you ask people how much, how many plants they dumped, versus an exact tally, they would underestimate. They would assume that they dump a lot less than they do. Um, so that would be a place where they have overemphasized their profits. And two, that we are not good at taking small steps that pay out over time. So, you know, if you threw away 10 plants today, you might log it because it was a big deal. Like I ate a slice of cheesecake, so I needed to account for it. The places where I think people get lost in budgeting as well as dieting, why I threw in the cheesecake, is, is those little pieces. So if you had to get rid of one plant today, oh, it's just one plant, it doesn't matter. It's just one bite of cheesecake, it doesn't matter. And so my guess is that this is extremely hard because we're not good at tracking little steps that add up to something big eventually. And we're overconfident in our abilities, so we assume that we're probably not dumping as much as we are. Very well said. Over, over the years, Michelle, 
I've got some percents that seem to be benchmarks for shrinkage slash crop loss. Below 5% tends to be considered excellent. Between 5 and 10% seems to be okay or good. 10% or higher, we qualify as poor. So keeping track of it, and, and you described it beautifully, here's, here's where small growers and large growers, there's a little uh, split in how, how they're able to operate Michelle. The large growers, they have more resources, and I would think that they have a much better handle on what they dump, what their shrinkage is. The smaller growers where, you know, it's one person is growing and stocking the shelves in the garden center and doing the cash register, the small growers tend to get lost, as you say, and not and, and underestimate, don't have it, uh, those, those accurate numbers. I tended to be a little... Um, uh, OCD in this part of my business. And I think it makes sense as we're talking about scheduling that if I'm the one scheduling, I'm also the one that needs to make the effort to get a handle around what's being dumped. So I would never uh, come to the garden center in the spring dressed in a shirt that did not have a pocket. And in that pocket, I would carry index cards and a pen or pencil. And I would keep track of anything going to the dumping pile, the compost pile, as we called it, not only would I record what the crop was, but I would go down to what the cultivar was, and I would finish off by identifying which of the sowings it came from. So having those numbers later in the summer after the season's dust settled allowed me to look down to the cultivar and the sowing of the cultivar level to get a good handle on, on what was dumped. So now leading into what the dumping, my dumping rule is, is as follows. I would dump or I would decrease the next year's production number by half of what I dumped this year. And the reason I adjusted that way, Michelle, it's easy to say, oh, I dumped 10 plants this year so I'm going to grow 10 fewer plants next year. And I think there's some danger there because one needs to try and identify what the reason was or what the reasons were for those 10 plants to be dumped. And in a greenhouse, a, a retail garden center in the month of May, one rainy weekend on Mother's Day or Memorial Day can be the reason that plants were dumped because uh, you know that garden centers um, tend to be counterculture uh, in terms of the busiest days in a garden center are on holidays and on weekends when most of the population is relaxing. So we've we've come to kind of put our hands together and pray as we get to, get to the month of May and say, okay, it's I don't care if it rains the entire. Monday through Friday, but give me Saturday and Sunday with a nice sunny weather. So, so the dumping rule, uh, re adjust the um, production by 50% of what's dumped. That kind of hedges bets a little bit. It could be the weather. It could be that a, a color wasn't in vogue a particular season. And, you know, those, those are very difficult things to predict. 
So go ahead and, and uh, comment or challenge uh, me on that. I, my only thought is that it makes sense that, you know, not to dump one for one because there are all of these different factors, but two, that, you know, this might be a year that there might be some shifting in that rule, you know, understanding why we decided to dump something or why it didn't sell is going to be you know, part of every single conversation right now, because did it not sell because the restaurant that you sell to wasn't open? Did it not sell because you couldn't get it out of the field? Like, what are those various reasons that impacted your sales this year? And what and then looking at the landscape, when we get to the next planting, what is the same and what is different? So I think that you've highlighted how much work it is to be a farmer and a grower. And unfortunately, right now, we're going to see that work pick up because your scheduling and your seamless transition that you've worked out might have applied for all the crops you're used to growing, and they are not going to apply for what you need to grow next. Um, and you might not know exactly how much you have to shift on the crop timing rule and the reasons why you had to dump more than normal this year or maybe even less than normal. You might have sold out of everything because people are so desperate to get fresh produce that that is an overestimation of how well you did. So there's a lot of these pieces. And I think that understanding these building blocks is important in any year, but really applying them this year and next year is going to be difficult. But at least now that you have the tools, you have a place to start. And that is the value I was really hoping to bring through this discussion. That, that was a really nice conclusion, a summary of, of this discussion, Michelle. I, I think Perhaps my, my final comment will be uh, in, in support of what you said. Uh, this, this is hard. It, 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 it's not easy. Um, being in control is something that we feel as farmers we have. But when we consider um, climate, mother nature, the economy, this crisis, how much control do we have? It, it much of this is out of our control. So I say we need to turn within and do our best to control what we can control. So, so for me, I think it's clear through this discussion how critically important I believe crop scheduling is to the profitability, the success of a small farm, whether it's fields, greenhouse or indoor. Crop scheduling, just as I said, plant breeding is the lifeblood of our industry. The crop scheduling in, in my eyes is, is the gear that makes everything turn. And if growers, some growers might have four scheduling rules, they might only have two. Great, more power to any grower that already understands how critical crop scheduling is. And for those who feel they need to learn a little bit more, I think some of the concepts, the principles that you and I discussed in this episode can help point them 
in the right direction, can help lead them toward that, that goal of, of uh, seamless transitions, knowing how to adjust production, how to incorporate um, the shrinkage, and all of these things aim at maximizing the profit margin. It's all aimed at making more money. And even more than that, Michelle, it's keeping more money in our pocket at the end of the season after all the bills have been paid. We, we want to have as much money in our pocket at the end. And if that means dumping less, scheduling more efficiently, efficiently selecting the right cultivars, as you say, go to the market first and get an understanding of what, what the demand is going to be during this crisis. Doing all those things, that's the due diligence. And in the end, uh, let's hope that we can maximize profit and look forward to another production season. Thank you, Peter, for all of your insight. I think that this is information that really you couldn't get without your experience as all three, a researcher, a garden center owner, and as someone that is working with other growers and teaching part of their regular business. So we covered a lot of great ground today. There are some resources that are available. If you click in the notes for this episode, I will. you will be taken to uh, some links that help you, th remind you of the topics that we discussed today and give you a little bit of guidance on how to start to set up your seamless transition, your crop timing, and how to think about dumping. So thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you again next week. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and the Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.